0: Hey everyone, how you doing? It's Greg again. I'm here with another edition of See It or Shove It. This week, I give you my thoughts on the latest movies playing in theaters and streaming on your TV, and I also debut a new segment. And we find out what you voted for for the latest Be Kind Rewind. So let's get started. For our featured films this week, Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin team up yet again in Moving On. Willem Dafoe gets trapped during a heist gone wrong in Inside. And Zachary Levi returns for another round in Shazam! Fury of the Gods. First up, when a woman attends the funeral of a dear friend, she informs the widow that she is going to kill him. This is Moving On. A devoted wife and mother... A doting grandmother. Joyce was a wonderful woman. Joyce. This is Claire, one of Joyce's oldest friends. They were at college together. (sighs) Claire. Howard. I'm going to kill you. Now that she's gone, I'm going to do it this weekend. Evelyn. I need to talk to you. About what? I told him I was going to kill him. I could chat. Academy Award winner Jane Fonda plays Claire, a woman hell-bent on revenge. While attending the funeral of her friend Joyce, Claire greets Joyce's husband by telling him that she is going to kill him the following day. Claire has been living for decades with the aftermath of a sexual assault at the hands of her friend's husband. The trauma from the experience has stifled her life, ruined relationships, and has kept her from any enjoyment. Now with her friend gone, she doesn't need to worry about the effect telling the truth will have on her. The husband, Howard, played by Malcolm McDowell, is a vain, brash blowhard who explicitly states that he has no regrets in his life. You know, basically an asshole. This just fuels Claire with her plan. She recruits her friend, Evelyn, played by the hilarious Oscar-nominated actress Lily Tomlin, and the two begin a quest to locate a gun so that Claire can go through with it. Evelyn, who also has skeletons in her closet regarding her experiences with Joyce and Howard, does her best to get Claire to move on, but Claire, having spent her life petrified by the trauma of the situation, can't seem to shake it, even as she is reunited with her former husband, Ralph, played by the charming shaft himself, Richard Roundtree. Can Evelyn convince Claire that Howard is not worth going to prison for? When I saw the trailer for this, I predicted it would be a see-it, and I give this film a (laughs) see-it. First off, I just love Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. Anything and everything they do together is a must-watch for me. They are hilarious and have great chemistry. In fact, I wish they did everything together for the rest of their careers. This film, directed by Paul Weitz, who also directed Tomlin in the great yet underseen film Grandma a few years back, has an excellent balance between humor and heart. There is a somber undertone throughout as we see the two women both dealing with regret as they enter into the later stages of their lives. McDowell is snarky and perfect for this role, and Roundtree is the heart of the story as his character is reunited with Fonda's. I want to say you know how this is going to end, but fortunately, this has a whopper of an ending that I didn't see coming. I laughed out loud several times, and at an hour and 25 minutes, it has a brisk pace that doesn't allow for too much unnecessary things to weigh down the story. It is currently in limited release, but if it's playing near you, go see it. Next up, Academy Award-nominated actor Willem Dafoe stars as an art thief. Whose heist goes way, way off track. This is inside. When I was a kid, my teacher asked what I would save from my house if it were on fire. I answered, my sketchbook, my ACDC album, and my cat grandchild. I didn't mention my parents or my sister. Does that make me a bad person? Oh, oh. Cats die. Music fails. But art is for keeps. The story begins with Willem Dafoe as Nemo, an art thief... who has been tasked with entering into a New York penthouse apartment to seize three pieces of art. He successfully disables the security alarm and finds two of the three paintings. Just as he is about to give up and leave with only two... The security system malfunctions and literally locks everything down, trapping him inside. Nemo's co-conspirators tell him he's on his own, and they jet out of there, leaving him behind to fend for himself. Nemo is unsuccessful in trying to break the windows or carve a hole in the wooden door or do everything he can to get out, but he is sealed in there. Realizing he is stuck, he looks for ways to escape, but to no avail. With the apartment's plumbing turned off, he soon discovers his only source of water is the indoor pool, an automatic garden watering system, and a couple of fish tanks. He also has to contend with the malfunctioning system that causes the heat to skyrocket before dipping to freezing levels on and off, on and off. This leaves Nemo with no choice but to get creative in building a mountain out of the apartment's furnishings in an attempt to escape through the skylight. Can Nemo use his intuition to create an escape plan before it's too late? I give this film a, a Mild Shove It. When I left this film, I thought, eh, I guess it's on the edge of a see it. I guess I guess I'll give this a mild see it. But as I sat with it for a day or two, it hit me that this was mainly because of Defoe who does his usual great work with what little he is given. So because of this, I shifted it to a mild shove-it, because when you take Defoe out, you aren't left with much. It was so repetitive, which is a danger you have when your film is centered on one character in an isolated location. The temp goes up, he sweats. The temp drops down, he freezes. The temp goes up, he sweats. The temp drops down, he freezes. He's running out of food. He begins to go crazy. We've seen it all before in similar films. Although, it was my first time seeing a pool filled with shit that honestly could have been left on the cutting room floor. It was so gross. I think this film thinks it's more artistic than it actually is. It's not a horrible film, just a relatively boring one, and that to me is egregious when you are marketed as a suspense thriller. Go ahead and skip this one. Finally, when a trio of ancient gods are hell-bent on revenge, Shazam and his team must fight for the future. This is Shazam, Fury of the Gods. I don't know how we fight powers like this. I can't do this. Take my powers back. You gave them to me, so you would take them back, right? I spent a millennia searching for a worthy champion. You know exactly what must be done. The film opens with vindictive sorceresses called the Daughters of Atlas, played by Oscar winner Helen Mirren and Lucy Liu, who are out to avenge Atlas, their father. Breaking into the Acropolis Museum to steal the broken staff of the wizard Shazam, played again by two time Oscar nominee Jaiman Hansu. the two witches wreak havoc on the museum before visiting the wizard who is imprisoned, and forces him to repair it so they can activate its powers. Billy and the rest of his foster family are still living their daily lives as hapless teenagers who occasionally are called to confront evil by yelling the word Shazam and converting to adult superheroes with special powers. In their daily life, Billy struggles with life at school while Freddy is constantly bullied, Freddie meets a new girl named Athena, played by Rachel Zegler, whom you may remember was so great in Spielberg's remake of West Side Story a couple years back. God, she was good. It turns out Athena is the last of the three sisters who has been sent to gain inside information on the family. And that's not really a spoiler alert, because that's revealed very early in the movie. With the trio of sisters threatening to take over the world, it is up to the family's alter egos, led again by Zachary Levi, to overtake the witches. When I saw the trailer for this, I predicted this would be a shove-it, and I give this film a mild see-it. The first Shazam, released in 2019, was a film that shouldn't have worked, but it did. It had charm and humor to spare, and Levi was surprisingly great in his role, and he is again with this one. When I saw the trailer, I thought it was going to be absolutely terrible and a disappointing follow-up to its predecessor. In some ways, it was. It wasn't as engaging, but there is still enough charm and humor left to make this a surprisingly enjoyable movie for the most part. Mirren and Lou do their best in their roles, but I will always feel like whenever I see Helen Mirren in these franchises, she seems so out of place. Although I do find it admirable that she doesn't feel above doing movies like this, so that's that's nice. And Rachel Zegler, who was fantastic in West Side Story, like I said, she was missing something here that she had in that movie. I'll have to see how her next film is to see if maybe she is one of those who is great in the right hands, type of actresses. Um, But overall, it was a mindless, fun movie that's worth seeing if you like superhero movies. It has everything that you would want, so uh, just don't go in with huge expectations, and I think you might enjoy it. That's it for this week's featured films. To recap, Moving On is in theaters now and is a See It and is my pick of the week. Inside is in theaters now and is a Mild Shove It and Shazam! Fury of the Gods is in theaters now and is a mild see-it. Now, onto my brief take of some additional movies I've watched in my segment, Quick Picks. A Snowy Day in Oakland tells the story about the lives of a neighborhood block in Oakland, California, and how things get turned upside down when a new tenant arrives. It is playing in select theaters now and is a shove-it. Chang Can Dunk is a charming family film about a height-challenged teenager determined to become a skilled basketball player. It is streaming on Disney Plus now and is a see-it. And Bruiser, featuring a stunning performance by Moonlight star Trevante Rhodes, is a deeply moving story about what defines a family. It is streaming on Hulu and is a see-it. Now, like I mentioned last week, it's time for Oscar Outlook Substitute to debut with a new segment where I debate a controversial Academy Award winner and decide if Oscar got it right or Oscar got it wrong. For the debut segment, I want to go all the way back to the 1988 ceremony and discuss the winner of the Best Actress Oscar. The nominees that year were Meryl Streep in Ironweed. Sally Kirkland in Anna, Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction, Holly Hunter in Broadcast News, and the winner was Cher in Moonstruck. I declare in this case, Oscar got it... wrong. And here's why. Now, Cher's performance was great, don't get me wrong. And in all likelihood, it was probably her last chance at the Oscar because, let's face it, Choosing projects like Burlesque and Mama Mia, Here We Go Again, which I consider both to be very guilty pleasures. But they're just not anything that's going to result in her making space on her mantle for more awards, okay? But, come on, that category was stacked. Meryl Streep convincingly played a drunk in a film that was filmed in my hometown of Troy, New York, by the way. Sally Kirkland had an intense performance. Holly Hunter was at that point, an up-and-coming actress whose performance had many thinking she might actually win it. Um, this whole category actually reminds me of this year's Best Actress category, where Sally Kirkland ran and funded her own campaign in the same way that Andrea Riseborough did. Meryl had her perennial nomination like Michelle Williams did. Holly Hunter was just hitting it big in a way similar to Anna de Armas. Close had a brilliant, iconic character like Blanchett did, and Cher sailed to the wind on a wave of goodwill for the film and her performance like Michelle Yeoh did, so the similarities are striking. But in my mind, it doesn't get any better than Glenn Close as Alex Forrest in Fatal Attraction. That performance is iconic today as it was back then. Fatal Attraction was the highest-grossing film of 1987, which actually surprised me when I read that, because but then again, this was before superhero movies and sequels ruled the box office, and her performance sparked news reports of men being so afraid to cheat on their wives. Close was so careful in her research and preparation to present Alex in a layered, compassionate light, and was actually vehemently against reshooting the ending of the film as it turned the character into a villain. If you've never seen the original ending, look for it on YouTube to see how Alex meets her fate. Again, Cher's performance was charming and witty, but Close's performance was legendary. I mean, the people still talk today about Boiling Bunnies, and if you've never seen Fatal Attraction, it is a terrifying film, and it is one you should watch. It's great. Um, but I think she deserved it, and it would have given Glenn her richly deserved Oscar that she has yet to win. As an added bonus, Kirkland's reaction to losing is a classic, But unlike Angela Bassett this year, she quickly recovered and started smiling. So, do you agree with me that Glenn Close should have won the Oscar over Cher? Or do you think I'm crazy? Head over to my Instagram account and let me know. Now it's time for the segment where I look at films from the past. This is Be Kind, Rewind. Continuing my series where I take the 52-week movie challenge, this week's topic was a film that won the Best Adapted Screenplay. You had four movies to select from, and you voted, and selected the incredible film The Silence of the Lambs. Killer is on the loose. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, skins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength cautious precise and he's never impulsive he'll never stop but in order to track him down she'll have to match wits i'll help you catch him clary believe me you don't want hannibal Lecter inside your head with the darkest of all minds just do your job and never forget what he is oh i get creeped out even just watching that trailer Anyway, this film was released on February 14, 1991. Can you imagine taking your Valentine date to see this? Good God! The film stars Jodie Foster as Clarice Starling and Anthony Hopkins as the iconic Hannibal Lecter. Starling is an FBI trainee who is trying to track down a serial killer named Buffalo Bill, played by Ted Levine. Bill is known for skinning his victims— Starling is having a difficult time finding him and solicits the help of Dr. Hannibal Lecter, an imprisoned psychologist and serial killer who is known for eating his victims. The two play a game of cat and mouse as they each become fascinated with one another, and not always in a positive way. Lecter begins to mindfuck Starling, who then sees her case compromised by her weakened mindframe. This movie, based on the novel by Thomas Harris, is incredible, and what is more incredible is that it's a horror movie, released in February, and was nominated for seven Academy Awards the following year, and shockingly winning what is called the Big Five, which is Best Actor for Hopkins, Best Actress for Foster, Best Director for the late, great Jonathan Demme, Best Adapted Screenplay for Ted Talley, and of course, Best Picture. This is a shocking feat because horror films tend to not do well in terms of even getting Oscar nominations, let alone wins. In fact, in its 95 years, only six horror films have ever been nominated for Best Picture. The Exorcist was the first, and then came Jaws, followed by Silence of the Lambs, and then The Sixth Sense, Black Swan, and most recently, Get Out. It became only the third film to achieve the Big Five after 1934's It Happened One Night and 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. To this day, it remains the last film to do this. The most recent film to have had an opportunity to achieve this was 2016's La La Land, which was nominated for all five but won Best Actress for Emma Stone and Best Director for Damien Chazelle, and for about three minutes Best Picture until the correct winner Moonlight was revealed to have won. The film spawned many sequels and reimaginings. Hannibal, with Julianne Moore replacing Foster as Starling, was released in 2001, and the prequels Red Dragon and Hannibal Rising were released in 2002 and 2007 respectively. But all failed to live up to the legacy in respect of their predecessor. NBC aired a fantastic series called Hannibal from 2013 to 2015, starring Mads Mikkelsen as Lecter, and it was incredible, and shocking, considering that this was shown on network television. But if you come across that show on Hulu, it's worth a watch. Most recently, CBS made an attempt at an origin series named Clarice, but it failed to connect with audiences and was cancelled after one season. The Silence of the Lambs can be streamed on HBO Max, but trust me, just don't watch it while eating fava beans and drinking Chianti. Next week's Be Kind Rewind topic is a controversial film. The choices that will be up for a vote are Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, Basic Instinct, and Brokeback Mountain. Come to my Instagram at Cedar Shovet to vote for which film I should focus on. The post with the most likes will be the next week's segment. So that's it for this week's episode of Cedar It. Thank you so much for joining me again this week and lending me your ears. I am so grateful. Support your local theaters by going to see some of the movies I reviewed this month, and while you're at it, share my podcast with anyone you think will enjoy it. And don't forget, you can follow me on Instagram at see it, or shove it. rate me wherever you get your podcast, and I recently just joined Letterboxd with the username see it, or shove it. so you can follow me there where I give instant reviews in 10 words or less of the movies I see. Come back next week to hear my thoughts on Keanu Reeves returning in John Wick Chapter 4, Florence Pugh in A Good Person, and whatever this week's Monday mystery movie is at Regal Theaters, I think it's going to be Owen Wilson's film Paint. But I'll be back and I will let you know what it was. Until then, have a great week, everyone. This episode of Theater Shove It was recorded in Orlando, Florida, and is produced by Gregory G. Productions. Music by Mysterio Music, all rights reserved.